Okay, good morning everyone. Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. We're going to be looking at, because it's been a couple of weeks, we're just going to pick up at chapter 14. And the goal will be maybe to go a little more quickly through 14. It's a continuation of this theme, a wise son, wise ways to live. It's part two of three. So we'll jump in at chapter 14, verse 1, do a little overlap right after we open with invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so at chapter 14, verse 1, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. That's, you know, okay, that's in my notes where we left off. Is that where we left off, though? Yeah. That's the problem with, that's the problem with, like, I study this, I read this, <laughs> and then I forget where we left. Okay, good. So, we, I know we covered this proverb before in some detail, so I think it's self-evident. Building of the house here has less to do with the physical nature of, like, the building and more with household building up those within the household, whereas folly with her own hands tears it down. So we talked about the vocation, the holy office and calling of being a wife and mother. And then two, whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. So this idea of uprightness is going to recur throughout this section. And I know we touched on this the last time we met as well, so I won't go into detail here, except to point out, again, the recurrence of this theme, the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom and the thesis of Proverbs. So whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord. But he who is devious in his ways despises him. So, we want to walk as faithful, as wise, fearing the Lord and walking in uprightness. All right. Three. By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. All right. And there's some ambiguous grammar here. It could carry the sense of the mouth of a fool comes as a rod for the backs of others. The lips of the wise man preserving others. But let's read it maybe just in the simplest sense in which it comes across in the English Standard Version. By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back. So again, it's this idea that what comes out of your mouth is going to fall back upon you. And this is a theme we've seen recur throughout the Proverbs. 
contrasted with the lips of the wise preserving the wise. So again, out of the what comes out of the lips has either negative or positive effect. So you want to guard what comes out of your lips. As a wise person, you want wisdom to come out of your lips, and you'll have preservation. I think we had covered those in some detail the last time we met. Any questions or concerns about those? Straightforward enough, I think. Okay, so we'll keep going. At four, where there are no oxen, this is a great one, the manger is clean. (laughs) But abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. So, yeah, you got no oxen, you got no mess. You also got no food. (laughs) And then that contrasted, of course, that, yeah, if you've got an ox, you've got the mess, you've got to deal with that, but it's better to deal with that because of the abundance of crops that come. So I don't know, how would you summarize this? How would you put it in your own words? Some... Some trouble is worth it because the end result is better than not having the trouble at all. As a pastor, I'm very biased, so this is how I think of it. I think of it sometimes when you hear little babies screaming everywhere, and I think to myself, these are good problems to have. Because in the short term, it means you can't hear the sermon, and maybe I can't think of what I'm saying. (laughs) But in the long term, that's exactly the kind of problems you want to be having. That's the longevity and future of the church, of the Christian faith. So that would be one reflection, I think, that's parallel to this theme. And that's just the idea that some troubles are worth having because the end result is so good. And as soon as you say, well, I don't want that trouble, you lose the result. Maybe, Maybe more deeply, too, we could reflect on our nation's attitudes towards parenting. I don't want kids. Kids are too much trouble. I just want to be wealthy and fly around and do whatever I want to do until I die all alone with a meaningless life with no one surrounding me. But anyway, you have this idea that kids are more trouble than they're worth. But clearly that's not a godly perspective. It's not even a true perspective. Parenting is hard work, but there's nothing more rewarding. You have an abundance of crop, quote-unquote, in terms of the joys you have and the meaning you have uh, in being a parent. So that might be another application of this kind of proverb. Please. I find that husbands and parents are, and children often use it as an excuse that there's a mess because there's a lot being done. Yeah. But then they don't bother to clean up the mess, <laughs> and it gets left. Right. Saying, I'm still working. Right, Yeah. Yeah, so in the spirit of St. Paul, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, and he applies that to pastors, then I would say, don't visit my office. You're going to find the ox's stalls a little messy. (laughs) But it's good, because that's productivity. So, yeah. Yeah, some trouble is worth having because that trouble is by design. Really kind of a fun way to reflect on on uh, vocation, what God calls us to. Try not to go out too far on a tangent here, but I was reading a book. Let me see if I can come up with a, at least a paraphrase of the line. It's got this like seventh or eighth century 
church father, and he's got this line where he says, he's complaining about, he's actually complaining about Muslims and the Islamic faith, but if you know anything about that, the it's absolutely a valid critique but I think it resonates with all of us in regard to our sinful nature and he says that they desire pleasure more than any good just kind of a stunning line because the implication of it is that pleasure frequently is at war with the good and it's, not, it's either setting aside pleasure or engaging in things that are difficult, challenging, not pleasurable, through which a greater good comes. So I thought that was a very fascinating insight. How often, and I don't know about America, I mean, I think as Americans, we don't frequently think of this. We think of pleasure and good as the same thing, but they're quite distinct. If you, I, we've been on parenting here. If you want to have children walking in the fear of the Lord, there's going to be a certain kind of setting aside of pleasure as you engage in the parental task. And that's going to be, so your pleasure is going to be sacrificed for a good. There are some goods that are worth sacrificing pleasure for. So microcosmically, as I've said before, parents, you have to put down the iPhone. You have to sacrifice the pleasure. You have to make eye contact with your children and just absorb the nonsense and interact with it, interact with them, show you care, build a relationship, because that's setting aside the pleasure for a greater Good. Now, it's just a little tiny microcosm, but you can think of all the ways in which this applies. So I think that there's a sense here, too, you're setting aside the pleasure of a clean manger <laughs> and in sacrificing that, you're going to be cleaning up the ox dung, you're going to have abundant crops. So this idea of leveraging pleasure especially instantaneous pleasure, instantaneous gratification against something that is truly a good, a greater good, that's worth pondering. All right, any thoughts, any reflections? On to five. A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. Now, it seems obvious and like not much there. I think the key here is the breathing out of lies and the idea that when one dabbles with something like lying, we tend to enter the thought process with like a certain kind of neutrality. Well, I can lie here, but then not lie there. And that's all within my control because I'm neutral. So I can be truthful here and a liar here. And of course, the deeper insight of the scripture is that's not the case. There is no neutrality. And when you give yourself over to a lie, you're giving yourself over to a power, namely the power of the one who is the capital L liar. And so one lie begets more lies, begets a pattern or a habitus of lying. And before you know it, you are simply breathing out lies. That is, with every, every inhale is just taken so that you can lie with the exhale. <laughs> so 
lying is not something one can dabble in. And I would, I would think, too, that we might see that other sins, more or less, have this same nature to them. But, again, some sins much more obviously so than others. Sins have a way of taking root and taking over. And here in view is an especially pernicious one, that of lying. So to be a faithful witness is not to lie, to maintain the truth. But a false witness breathes out lies. Just becomes part of his very being. A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain. But knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. I think a contemporary interpretation of this verse would be for scoffer, see someone who's skeptical, a skeptic, a cynic, who there's no evidence enough to prove him of anything. He's smarter than all of it except he betrays that with every one of his own beliefs that he doesn't scrutinize to the point he scrutinizes all the others. So this kind of hypocritical cynicism of the modern age is probably a good overlay for scoffer. So as, they, as a scoffer, one who is this Im, sort of cynically embittered um, pursues wisdom, he never finds it probably because he just ends up finding his own opinion everywhere. He's locked within himself. He, the only things he counts wise are things that he thinks are wise. And so he's locked within himself. Contrasted with a man of understanding, which of course this is a man of faith, a man who fears the Lord, a man who is following Yahweh, Christ our Redeemer. And such a man uh, receives knowledge easy or in Yeah, it's easy for a man of understanding. How so? Because we see that knowledge comes from ourselves? No, from God. So there is an objective truth, there is objective knowledge, it comes from God, it's given to us, and in faith we can grasp a hold of that even if we don't yet understand it. It's that I mean, I I was reflecting on this a little bit this last week, too, that you can grab a hold of something that God says in his word and just simply hold that it's true, even if you don't understand it, or even if the way that you understand it ends up being totally wrong, nonetheless, it will be absolutely true and will be revealed to you as such. You will never be ashamed by saying, God says X, I believe X. God says Y, I believe Y. You will never, ever be put to shame may kind of feel like you're uh, riding a bucking bronco or something, or it may feel like you're a ship getting, you know, heaved up and down on the waves as you cling to that truth and, you know, think you understand it and don't understand it and are confident and then are doubtful or whatever the case is, but moored to that uh, word of God, uh, it is knowledge and you won't be put to shame and you can simply cling to it. And, you know, I think that that's... uh, the sort of the beautiful thing is you can understand the Bible in all kinds of complex ways, and that's great. It's there. I mean, it's like the, but it, yeah, it's like the Bible's like the ocean, you know? It's deeper than you can possibly fathom. It's deeper than any man can go. 
even with the most advanced equipment, but it's also accessible to anyone. Even to little babies, you can go play in the waves. It's every bit as wet, it's every bit as wonderful. It's every bit as much the ocean. That's how God's word is. So I think that that would be my encouragement too, is don't let, uh, don't, don't take the impression that the word of God is somehow for experts or pastors or it's for everyone, everyone who's a Christian and there's truth there and you can grab a hold of what it says and be every bit as certain um, in reading that scripture and taking it at face value as if God himself verbally said it into your ears. So just take confidence and take heart in that. And in that sense, then I think this proverb is absolutely right, that knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. Okay. Seven, leave the presence of a fool. (laughs) For there you do not meet words of knowledge. Even in our Old Testament text from Proverbs today, this idea of not rebuking a scoffer because it's a waste of your time and you're just going to get abuse. When you come to the conclusion that someone is a fool or maybe even a fool in this particular area, then you are not only well within your rights, but Scripture would instruct you to depart from such a person. Don't waste your time any further. Don't get wrapped around the axle trying to think of how this person thinks. They're not thinking well. (laughs) They're thinking in a corrupted way. Obviously, in the deepest sense here, a fool or a foolish person is an unbeliever who's espousing things contrary to the knowledge and wisdom of God. So when you find such a person, and depending on your relationship, you've maybe tried some conversation or some correction or some convincing or whatever the case may be, but at a certain point you just have to sort of wipe the dust from your feet and move on. You're not going to meet words of knowledge in his presence. All right, at eight, the wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. So this is like one of the questions that they ask us to evaluate our vicars on. <laughs> so, and, and the question is like this. Can the vicar evaluate himself? And... To what degree do you trust his accuracy in that task? So can a person be self-reflective in a relatively objective way, see strengths and weaknesses in a relatively objective way, and then seek out correction? That's you know what this is indicating, where it's leading. And I think that that, in a sense, communicates the essence of this proverb that the wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, to reflect on his way, to reflect on what he has done, what he ought to do, etc. Whereas the folly of fools is deceiving, that is, it's self-blinding. The folly of fools is, well, just because I think it, it's right. 
why would I ever bother being objective? Why would I ever bother being self-critical? Why would I ever bother being analytical? And of course, you know that broadly speaking, or maybe with the most depth, this is the way of unbelievers. Unbelievers don't reflect on anything. Of it's just it's so plain. It's on the front of your nose. They think there's like they don't think. How did I come into being? Just hear some bit about monkeys and go. Okay, I'd rather believe that than what my own natural knowledge of God tells me. I'd rather suppress the natural knowledge that God has put into me of himself and believe some fable about evolving from monkeys. And a fool will just simply go blindly into life predicated on something like that. Well, there's just nothing, but we're just all animals, so I'm going to live however I want to live. I think that's the idea of the folly of a fool being deceiving. It's so blinding he can't even be self-critical. He can't even be reflective. In the same way, a a scoffer thinks he's seeking wisdom, but he does so in vain because of his own inner hypocrisy. Okay, that's my thought on that. I saw, oh, thank you. Yeah, please. Yeah, past, is this on? Yes, it is. Uh, Can we go back to uh, seven? Okay. uh, Talking about the fool. I'd, I'd like to contrast that to the scripture that says the word that we're to be the salt of the earth. Uh, and that's kind of being salty is uh, it, mixing it up to me. In other words, you're mixing it up with the unsalty uh, or the fools. It, it doesn't say that the fool is a gross sinner, although he's probably an unbeliever. Uh, so it, it's, it's a conflict for me. Mm. You know, I mean... Yeah, I think I can see your point. There's fools all over the place that I'm friends with. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and I mean, there's a time to confess that we're all foolish. That we all have nothing except that which God gives. And we're infinitesimally small relative to him. So, yeah, there's an equivocation with that language of fool. What exactly is meant there? And I think what the proverb has in mind is the hardened unbeliever who thinks himself to be wise, who thinks he's got an answer for every word of God and closes his ears off to it and thinks that in living the way he wants to live, he's living wisely. I think that that's so I think that that's why then when you encounter this type of person you're and I you know implicit here in 7 is for there you do not meet words of knowledge. So the idea would be like don't think you're going to get knowledge from a fool. Don't think you're going to be able to get fresh water from the ocean. That's the kind of idea. So I don't know that it's prohibiting friendship with unbelievers or anything like that. I don't think it is uh, per se. It's just recognize you're not going to get wisdom from someone who's a fool. And when you, you know, and I think microcosmically or in terms of episodes of your life, you can think that where you're having a conversation with someone and maybe the conversation starts to turn into an argument and you're not getting anywhere. Here's a proverb that says, hey, Stop trying. (laughs) Instead of what? What's the alternative? Escalating until now, you know, maybe you maybe you stumble and fall into sin or something, or if nothing else, you kinda engage into a in some sort of foolish because at a certain point, don't you show yourself to be a fool if you're yammering at someone who shows no interest in changing or no interest in even engaging? 
So there's a kind of wisdom and self-reflectiveness that, that the scriptures call us to, that God calls us to, in saying, if I continue this conversation, nothing good is going to come of it. Let me try again another time. <laughs> right? Let me try a different angle later, but not right now. So I think that's all it's getting at. Hopefully that clarifies a little. Okay, and then nine fools mock at the guilt offering, but the upright enjoy acceptance. So here in this section is the second time we've encountered this concept of uprightness. And so the acceptance is God's acceptance of the sinner on account of the guilt offering. And so the upright enjoys the acceptance of God. That is, does uprightness here mean sinlessness? No. Uprightness is one who has the integrity to say, I am a sinner. I need the guilt offering. And I enjoy God's acceptance of me. I enjoy that God blots out my iniquities. Now, the Old Testament guilt offering has to be repeated up until Christ. Then there's no more need for guilt offering or any other Old Testament offerings because they're all fulfilled in Christ. So for us reading this, Christ is the once and for all offering by which we enjoy acceptance. But we can't let the world's narrative, Satan's narrative, really, lead us down this path of like, if you're a Christian and you still sin, then you're a hypocrite and not a person of upright character. That has it exactly upside down. If you're a Christian and you agree with the law that it is good, but the flesh within you still does evil, it's no longer you who sin, St. Paul says, but sin that dwells within you. So in uprightness, you acknowledge that the law is good and it is right and I have fallen short of that and I desire to be saved from this body of death through Christ Jesus, my Lord. I desire to be accepted by God on the basis of Christ's righteousness, not my own. That's wisdom. And that's the upright enjoying acceptance. Now, the fool is going to be one who mocks at the guilt offering and can mock in that in any number of ways. I mean, I think applied in New Testament terms, anyone who attacks the idea that Christ is crucified for the forgiveness of our sins is very clearly mocking the guilt offering. But there are, of course, other ways in which it can be mocked as well. So, if you just think about crass unbelievers, they don't think that Jesus died for their sins. They don't think that they have any sins that are serious enough to necessitate such a sacrifice. So it would be a kind of mocking at the guilt offering. All right, let me pause there. Just give you a chance to reflect, or maybe you've seen something or seen an application of something that you'd like to share. All right, then I'll keep plugging along. Verse 10 The heart knows its own bitterness, and no stranger shares its joy. 
Yeah, now that's a fascinating, fascinating statement. It does tend to speak of a kind of isolation in which we find ourselves. I think, I think largely in view here on account of sin, maybe it has something to do with just our natural, you know, being creatures, but I kind of have doubts about that, and there might be ways in which that is understood incorrectly. What seems to be in view here is on account of the fall, we have a kind of isolation with, with, within ourselves apart from one another, such that the heart knows its own bitterness and no stranger shares its joy. That is, known only unto you is the bitterness you experience in your heart and likewise the joy you experience in your heart. And it's impossible to fully translate or communicate that to someone else. Probably on account of the fall. That's, that's my suspicion. Now, I think the study note points us towards Christ being able to break through that because he knows our hearts. Let me see if that's right. 10. The deepest emotions of the heart cannot always be fully shared with others. Jesus, however, always knows exactly how we feel. And I think that that's good. And I think that's good to reflect on because this is the sense in which Christ is the bishop and and the pastor and bishop of our souls. He's the one who knows precisely what we're going through, even when we can't communicate it to someone else, even when that someone else doesn't care or won't hear it. Uh, Christ is the one with whom we can share our burdens. And it's a reminder, this proverb's really rich, though, because it's a reminder, too, that you may have it much lighter than someone else. You don't know, it's kind of these old platitudes, but they're still, they have a kind of truth here. You just don't know what someone else is going through. And sometimes it manifests in, you know, behavioral things where you go, well, that's a rotten person, or that's a foolish thing, or that's an ugly, evil thing. But you probably ought to, if you're going to love that person, take time to figure out what's underneath it and what it is they're feeling or experiencing. And of course, we have all kinds of sinful ways of dismissing that, too. Just because someone's gone through a tragedy similar to your own doesn't mean you can be like, oh yeah, I've been through that. Get over it, I got over it. Because you don't know, I mean, just as they're different than you, their way of experiencing it, their way of processing it is going to be different than you. So there's kind of, I don't know, there's kind of a compassion to the, from God to you in this verse, but then there's kind of also a call to be compassionate unto others. Okay, I saw a hand. Yeah, please. Uh, right to your left behind you. When uh, I think of bitterness and joy, I uh, also think of David. He seems like, in the Psalms, he seems like someone who has a handle on expressing both of those. And I wonder if that's his closeness to God, or that's a, that shows that, or he's just someone I think of when I think of those two things. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. Trying to think of who it was can't remember some philo- some semi-christian philosopher um, whose name escapes me right now but he's got this great lament on at least part of the plight of modern man being that there's no real sinners anymore there are no real sinners anymore <laughs> what he means by that 
is you've got a bunch of wimps and weaklings. Now, I'll, I'll bring it into contemporary time. You've got a bunch of wimps and weaklings who uh, hide out in their houses, and everything they do wrong is online and has a kind of air of non-reality to it. But because they're not out in the world and engaging with the real challenges of life, there's never even opportunity to commit real sins. There's likewise never any opportunity to do any significant goods. So he's lamenting the shrinking of humanity, where humanity um, on an individual and corporate basis seems to no longer be capable of great feats of courage and strength or of great sins, because the two go hand in hand. Rather, what's happened in the modern age, particularly to males, is we've all become too weak to do either great things or bad things. Just sort of milk toast, blase, forever children. So it's an interesting lament. When I think of a person like David, or when you read the scriptures, you see much larger people. Large in the sense of capable of astounding feats of greatness and goodness and faithfulness, but also capable of astounding falls into great depths of sin. So you see a kind of largeness of character that seems to have been lost as the centuries have rolled on. And this ties in very much with our experience of nihilism, that nothing really matters and nothing I do has any consequence or any weight. I'm just a little peon, I'm just a little cog in the wheel. And many people profit from that, don't they? They profit from keeping you placated and quiet and not living a public life where there's either great goods or great evils that could be performed because those two things go hand in hand. Everything's all truncated. Okay, well, enough on that lament. But I think that that's, um, when I think of David and I think of some of the, the they're men that create big, that, that do big sins, but do extremely uh, incredible feats of faithfulness. And so when you think of the bitterness and joy of someone like David, and you think of his great fall into sin and the many facets of it, and you think of the depths of the bitterness in Psalm 51 being written out of that context, then you think the heights of the joy of David and the joy of his heart. I mean, he's dancing and celebrating that they recovered the Ark of the Covenant, so much so that it's his dancing and celebrating that offends, uh, what's his name, what's her name, Michal or whatever, yeah, Michal, his wife, who's all embittered that he's like, oh, this is too bombastic, he should be more pious and quiet and nerdy, you know, and he's like, you know, whipping around, just filled with joy, so I do think that that's kind of an interesting way to reflect how we've all become vanilla as people. Uh, whereas when you look at the Bible, all of a sudden, it's not vanilla, but the stakes are way higher in terms of bitterness and joy. Okay, uh, wherever the mic is, it doesn't matter to me who goes first. Yeah. We have the word bittersweet, and uh, it reflects this, I think. And I'm, I, you make me think of the movie Braveheart, where at the mm-hmm. end... He cries out freedom, and that's a bittersweet ending. But the biggest is Christ on the cross. Yes, there's a bittersweetness there, right. 
Right. Yeah. No. So, um, as Lutherans, we understand our sins, so I don't want this to sound pompous, but um, I look at the world today, and there's such grievous sin all around us, and the only ones that are willing to stand up in so many ways are those people that aren't believers, that are involved in the grievous sin. And, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, we're all in our houses, and we come to church and we, but I feel impotent, like, you know, what do we do? I can say Satan's causing it, but it's very frightening right now. And so I wish I was more like David. I got the sin thing nailed. I want to be the brave person. Yeah, yeah. Well, and David, you know, I don't know. It's worth, it's worth contemplating that I don't know what the cause of this is, of course, but even in David's time, not everyone was David. It's okay to be one of the Old Testament saints that's forgotten. It's okay to be a New Testament saint that's forgotten. There are all kinds of heroes that we don't know their names. They don't grace the pages of any history books, except for those of heaven, and we'll read about there. So I think that that is a goal to which we can aspire is to not allow ourselves as, and I'm going to speak to the males here, to be emasculated and neutered by a culture that rewards you for being emasculated and neutered. And I think then to be strong and courageous and bold according to the station of life in which God has placed you and to let that be sufficient knowing that what you are doing, even though it, you know, maybe your station in life is such that it's small and you're not going to have a great ostensible effect. Does it mean that it's not meaningful? No, that's the devil's temptation. I think we should all live in such a way as though our stories were being written in the Bible, just not the Bible here on earth, but the Bible there in heaven. The histories and annals of heaven are going to record the deeds that are meaningful to God here on earth, among which are such insignificant things as giving a cup of cold water to a little child in his name. So to pursue greatness is sometimes looked down upon by Christians as if, well, that ambition is sinful. Nothing could be further from the truth. Be ambitious toward the things of God Live as if you're to make your names written in the history books, but not in this earth, but in those of heaven. That's a way in which we can live courageously within the bounds of our vocations, knowing that we're making a difference and knowing that what we do is going to literally echo for eternity. Whereas the great deeds of this world are ultimately doomed to be forgotten. The great heroes of this world, they have their day right now. They're doomed to be forgotten. Only that which is remembered by God and written in heaven's history is of any value or will last. So that would be my encouragement in these days. Live in your status of life, but live knowing that God's paying attention and the people of God are rejoicing. Okay, that's it. We got to go. Thank you, Chris. The Lord be with you.